I'd like to thank Audible for supporting the Peter Schiff Show podcast. And now Audible is giving members even more with the new Plus Catalog. You can visit audible.com slash Peter or you can text Peter to 500-500 to start your free three-day trial now. Well, today was the one-year anniversary of the market bottom in 2020. It was March 23rd, a year ago today, that the market bottomed. And one reason that I remember that day is this is also the anniversary of my birth. I am 58 years old today. And the market really didn't celebrate either of these anniversaries. Everything pretty much was down across the board. All of the major U.S. stock market indexes finished down. Uh, The S&P and the Dow Jones down a little bit less than a percent, Dow down just over 300 points. The NASDAQ, which was positive for a good portion of the morning, it rolled over and closed down a little over 1%. But the big loser was the Russell 2000. That index got slaughtered by just over 3.5%. So a big drop there, but really no relief anywhere. Oil stocks got hammered today on a $4 drop in the price of oil, back down to $57.40. Gold also was down, but by a relatively small amount. Gold off about $10, $11. Silver, on the other hand, got a much bigger hit. Silver got clobbered about $0.70. Cents, but gold still holding above $1,700 an ounce. And all of this, despite the fact that we did manage to get a bit of a reprieve in the bond market today. We did see interest rates coming down a bit. Yields on the 10 years treasury back down to one spot 638 and on the 30 year down to two spot 348. But none of that relief in the bond market soothed the nervousness in the equity market. And so we were down there. Again, there was no place to hide. Even Bitcoin today Uh, was down. Look at the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust. It was down 5.5% today, back at $46.75. The high that that ETF hit not too long ago was 58 and a quarter. You know, I talked a lot about the fact that this trust was going to be trading at a discount some time ago. And in fact, it closed, I think, at around a 10% discount, which is about as wide as I've seen it. But to me, the chart looks really bad. I mean, I think we could see uh, this Grayscale Trust move to a 20% discount or so, maybe better. And, you know, that opens up a really big arbitrage opportunity for a hedge fund with some deep pockets that wants to make some easy money. The way they would do that is they would slowly buy up these Grayscale uh, Trust shares at a discount. Right? And at the same time they were buying these, they would be selling Bitcoin futures short. So they would be long GBTC and they would be short Bitcoin. Obviously, they're selling Bitcoin at the price of Bitcoin and they're buying the Grayscale Trust at a very substantial discount. And so they would want to keep putting that trade on as long as they could do it at a widespread. But here's the way you really make money on the trade. If they can buy enough shares to actually own a majority of the shares, I'm not really sure what all the rules are on forcing a liquidation. But if they can force the closed-end fund to liquidate, right? they buy it out and they liquidate it, then what happens is the trust has to go into the market and sell all of its Bitcoin to get cash to distribute the cash to the shareholders. Well, if you own all those shares and you bought them at a discount, You know, you want that to happen because you bought it at a big discount to the value of their assets and now they sell the assets and you can realize that profit. Now, of course, since the assets are Bitcoin, if the trust is forced to sell the assets, the Bitcoin, in order to get the money to redeem the shareholders, that's going to tank the price of Bitcoin. But that's fine because remember, the person who did this or the hedge fund that did this is short Bitcoin. So if the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust is forced to dump all of its Bitcoin into the market in order to redeem the shares in cash, 
and you're short Bitcoin at that time, well, then you make even more money on your Bitcoin short. So I think this is a trade that somebody can pull off. I don't know if anybody will get the idea from listening to this podcast, or maybe somebody will come up with the idea on their own. But it wasn't just a little bit of a relief in the bond market that failed to stimulate the stock market, but we also got more news today, although this is not really anything that should shock anybody, coming out of the Biden administration, that they are getting ready to propose another $3 trillion spending bill. Now, the ink is barely dry on the $1.9 trillion spending bill, aka stimulus, COVID relief, right? They barely finished that one, and they're ready with another deal. And this one, again, $3 trillion, although the stuff that I'm reading says that it could end up closer to $4 trillion, which means who knows what it's actually going to cost at the end of the day, even if the target is $4 trillion. And apparently, the Biden administration is going to try to split this massive spending bill into two separate bills. Maybe he thinks that's an easier way to get them passed. Maybe he thinks he can get some bipartisan support on the first one, because the first one supposedly is going to have a lot of the infrastructure. Although I have an idea that a lot of this infrastructure is really going to be Green New Deal stuff kind of disguised as infrastructure. But according to what I've read coming out of the Biden administration, This is the spending bill that's really going to target the Democratic agenda, not only infrastructure and Green New Deal, but they're going to try to tackle the wealth disparity, right? The the, the big gap between the rich and the poor. And I think they're even going to try to target some of this spending towards women, towards maybe trying to close the so-called gender gap by making it easier for women to work. Maybe there's going to be some more requirements on leave or working for home or all kinds of stuff, but there's going to be a lot of uh, liberal uh, concepts that are going to be in one of these bills, right? Because obviously the one that they're going to get no uh, Republican support for may be that one. But I think if the infrastructure bill also has tax increases, it's hard to believe that you're going to get a lot of Republican support for the tax increases. I think you may get some. And I think it obviously highlights the hypocrisy among the Republicans that a lot of these Republicans are willing to uh, vote for an infrastructure bill. They're just unwilling to vote to fund the infrastructure bill. Now, I guess in theory, they would prefer to have cuts in spending elsewhere, But then as far as, you know, the Keynesian playbook is concerned, it wouldn't be stimulative if we didn't have a bigger deficit. If the government just spends money on something instead of spending it on something else, it doesn't change the pie. What they want is more government spending, not just to rearrange government spending, even if the spending becomes uh, more productive or more efficient. What they really want to do is just spend more money. It doesn't really matter what they spend it on, just as long as they're spending more. And, of course, the Republicans might sign on to it, but for the tax hikes that are obviously going to be targeted at the rich. Although I'm reading now that they may be lowering their sights a bit and maybe hitting uh, people who are not quite as rich as they initially suggested, at least during the campaign. And, of course, the reason they have to go a little bit down the income ladder is, well, you know, that's why... Uh, When they asked Willie Sutton, why do you rob banks? He said, well, that's where the money is. Well, if you want to raise a lot of tax revenue, you can't just target the top end earners. The money is lower down. It's the middle class or upper middle class uh, that has a lot of money that ultimately you're going to need to tap into if you're planning on funding uh, three to four trillion dollars worth of spending. But I think to the extent that the tax hikes are targeted on the very rich, certainly it'll be difficult for some Republicans to vote against infrastructure spending that's going to benefit the masses of voters. And it's all going to be paid for, supposedly, by the super rich. Right. Uh, And, you know, so you lose the votes of the one percent to solidify the votes of the ninety nine percent. I mean, politicians could do math. Right. That's the only thing they can add up are votes. And they know that there's more votes at the ninety nine percent. Again, that's the same thing. Why? Do politicians target the 99% rather than the 1%, at least publicly, because that's where the votes are, right? So that's what they want. So I think these bills are going to get passed, even if there's very little to no 
Republican support for these bills and they're not bipartisan, I don't think that Biden is going to be upset if he achieves a narrow uh, victory totally on party lines. All they care about is getting this agenda enacted, getting these spending bills passed uh, under the guise that they are going to stimulate the economy. But of course, they're not going to stimulate anything but inflation. They're going to light a fire under consumer prices, which I have been discussing on this podcast, are going to be going up in a manner that we have never experienced before in this country. The only difference is our CPI index to measure this inflation is so badly flawed by design that it won't capture the real degree to which Americans are suffering uh, under uh, you know this uh, wave of inflation, but it will still register uh, CPI readings that are much higher than anything we've been seeing certainly uh, you know, since the 1970s. But I think in real terms, if we had a more honest CPI, we'd probably be showing uh, inflation rates above the 1970s by this year, if not by next year. But one person who is out there again, reassuring us that there is nothing at all to worry about is Paul Krugman. He is once again tooting his own horn, taking another unearned premature victory lap reminding everybody how right he was back in 2010, 2011, and how wrong all the other people were who were warning about inflation, warning about hyperinflation. Now, I know when Paul Krugman is writing his piece, he's thinking about me. I mean, even if he's not writing my name, he's thinking it in his head when he's talking about all the gloom and doomers and the naysayers who were proven wrong because they were warning about inflation. Because back then, he used to, every once in a while, mention me by name uh, to tell me how wrong I was to be concerned about inflation. So I'm sure that I'm still in the front of his mind as he's penning his op-ed, even if he's not incorporating my name into uh, his editorial. But what he is saying is that, hey, look, this is the same old crowd, the same old group of fear margers, and the same old Republicans who just don't like government spending. Because remember, back in 2010 and 11, when we were doing these deficits, when we, you know, we were trying to dig the country out of the hole uh, that Bush put it in uh, with the housing bubble, you know, without pointing out the fact that it was Krugman himself who actually wrote the prescription for the housing bubble. He said we needed a housing bubble to help fight off the recession that resulted from the stock market bubble. So forgetting about the fact that Krugman actually advocated for a housing bubble as policy, forgetting that for a moment, and just looking at the fact that he blames the recession on the Republicans, and he says that the Democrats got us out with stimulus and deficits and you know QE from the Fed, and Krugman is reminding everybody, hey, I told you guys back then that inflation wasn't a problem. But it was just these Republicans who just always hate government spending, even when it's needed, even when times are bad, you have these Republicans that are still anti-deficits, anti-spending. And so they were raising the boogeyman of inflation and all this money printing is going to lead to inflation. Of course, I didn't say that. I said all this money printing is inflation. It will lead to higher prices. And it has and it will, just not nearly as much as it's going to. But because we have not seen more substantial increases in a rigged CPI, Krugman is now saying, I told you so. Because back then, and it is true that he said it back then, Krugman was right, though he was right for the wrong reasons, but still right. The CPI never really exploded to the levels that people like me were worried would be the result of the reckless deficit spending and money printing of the QE1, QE2 uh, days of, you know, Ben Bernanke. And so now what he's saying is this same old group of guys are at it again. Now they're here saying that this $1.9 trillion deficit uh, spending bill is inflationary. And because of this money we're spending, right, to get out of this COVID recession and stimulate the economy, that it's going to cause inflation. And here they are again. And, you know, part of the problem, though, is that these Republicans, many of the Republicans who are criticizing the $1.9 trillion spending bill signed on to the other stimulus bills that were deficit spending financed by money printing when Trump was the president. So they weren't worried 
about deficits causing inflation when Trump was president, but they are all of a sudden worried about it when Biden's president. And that's unfortunately something that Krugman can call the Republicans out on, their hypocrisy, where it only seems that they're worried about deficit spending causing inflation when there is a Democrat in the White House. When there's a Republican in the White House, they're not worried at all. You can have all the deficits you want. You can print as much money as you want, no problem. But have a Democrat in the White House and all of a sudden they come screaming about inflation. And what he's saying is that they're wrong again or we're wrong again because I'm in that camp. And Biden is pointing out that when people like me were worried about inflation and there was an initial pickup in the CPI early on back in 2011, we did get a CPI, I think got you know close to 3%, I think 2.9, I forget the exact number. But we did see the beginnings of an increase in CPI and Paul Krugman said, don't worry, it's transitory, it's not gonna last. And there were other people that thought maybe this is the beginning of a much bigger move and I was probably in that camp. And as it turns out, Krugman was right because the CPI did come back down and we never really got the big move up. And that's not because Krugman was right. It's just because the world was wrong in their assessment of the efficacy of U.S. fiscal policy and monetary policy and the ability of the Fed to actually do what it was bluffing it could do, which was normalize interest rates and shrink its balance sheet back down to pre-financial crisis levels. And on anticipation of normalization of interest rates, shrinking the balance sheet, and the fact that then Europe embarked on the same failed QE policy only later than we did, the idea was that we were going to be tightening while the rest of the world was still easing. We were the first into the crisis, but we were going to be the first out. And that created a lot of demand for the dollar. And that helped support the U.S. economy, the U.S. bond market. And it temporarily kept a lid on consumer prices and made it appear that Krugman was right. He was not right. He was wrong. We are going to get all the effects of all that inflation. It's just going to happen later than people like I believed. It's going to be happening, I think, now. But now Krugman has been emboldened by his call, not understanding that he was right for the wrong reasons. He just thinks he's right because he's a genius economist. And after all, he's got the Nobel Prize to prove it. So what he's saying is just like the increase in prices were transitory in 2011, 2012, they're transitory now in 2021. And so we don't have to worry. The Fed is right. It's okay if the CPI comes up a little bit because it's just going to go right back down to where it was. And it doesn't matter that we're printing all this money, even more than we printed before. It doesn't matter that we have these massive deficits that are even bigger than the ones that we had before right? None of it's going to matter. None of it is inflationary. And we're going to go right back down to our below 2% world. And so the Republicans can get shut up because this stimulus is going to work. It's more government spending. This is exactly what the Keynesian prescription is for a weak economy. We need more government. We need more spending. And this is going to grow the economy. And, you know, the Republicans had to just shut up because all they know how to do is wreck economies and it's the Democrats that know how to fix it, which of course is a complete joke, but the joke is going to be on the rest of the country because this time Krugman is going to be wrong for the wrong reasons instead of right. Or maybe that's wrong for the right reasons. I'm not even sure, but he's dead wrong. And all of this money printing and all of these deficits are going to result in a big increase in consumer prices, not just a one-off increase or a temporary increase, but this is the beginning of a major reset of the price structure in the United States. And it's going to continue for years and years, and it's going to continue to build and feed on itself, mainly because the Fed is going to be so far behind the curve by the time it even acknowledges, if it ever does, that there's an inflation problem because the initial higher reads will be dismissed as transitory. So how long is it going to take before the Fed admits that it's not transitory? Because Powell already said that he needs a lot of data. He wants to see maybe at least a year of data of inflation above 2% before he would start to think about the fact or question the fact that maybe it's not transitory. He's not going to just, you know, 
assume it's not transitory unless there's real concrete proof because the prices keep going up and at some point it's like, okay, I guess it's not transitory. But by the time you know for sure that it's not transitory, now you've got inflation at maybe 5% or 6% or 7%. And again, that's your official inflation rate. Who knows where the actual inflation rate is? Clearly much higher than that. But then what is the Fed going to do about it? Today's episode is sponsored by NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. NerdWallet's financial journalists use fact-based reporting for some much-needed clarity in the finance world, helping you make smarter decisions with your money. Get smarter about things like saving on travel, because spending less on airfare means more money for an extra night and maybe a fancier dinner too. Boosting your credit score, since good credit is like a real-life cheat code. And saving for an emergency fund because life is like a good movie. It loves a good plot twist. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast on your favorite podcast app. Future you will thank you. I mean, what are they? Nothing. I mean, they can't raise interest rates from zero to 25 basis points. Remember, they're still going to be at zero the whole time because they said they're going to stay at zero until they're convinced that inflation is not transitory, or if they're convinced of that, only then would they lift interest rates from zero. Well, how do you go from zero to 6% or zero to 7%? You can't, because if inflation is six or 7% and you raise interest rates to a half a percent or 1%, that's not gonna make any difference. I mean, rates are still massively negative. You are not gonna slow down that inflationary freight train with that little baby step. You have to get medieval on inflation if you want to slow it down. You got to get way out ahead. So the Fed would have to go Volcker on the economy. And there's no way that is going to happen. So eventually the markets are going to anticipate the Fed is already setting the stage uh, for massive inflation. Because by the time it gets to a level where they would concede that it wasn't transitory, it's now too late to do anything about it. Because the measures to rein it in would be so draconian that, right, the cure would be worse than the disease. They would unleash a financial crisis far greater than 08 with no bailouts. And so everybody would lose money. Nobody would get bailed out, including the U.S. government, because the government would be forced to uh, restructure its debt and default on all sorts of commitments that it's made that it can no longer afford because the Fed is no longer uh, cashing its checks. Audible has plenty of content to entertain, inspire, and inform. It's easy to find just the right listen, whether you're into comedy, romance, suspense, true crime, science fiction, fitness, or wellness. It's all there. There's a listen for every moment and every mood and so much to discover. With all this in one place, Audible can truly become your playlist for life. And now Audible is giving members even more with their new Plus catalog. And you can start exploring Audible now with a free 30-day trial at audible.com Peter. Or you can text Peter to 500-500. Audible Plus members have full access to the Plus catalog And you can listen all you want to thousands of titles across different formats and genres, including unique Audible originals like the Words Plus music series. You can download or stream without limit, and you can even listen offline anytime, anywhere. To use your Audible membership, you'll need to download the free Audible app to any smartphone or tablet. And you can even listen across devices like Amazon Alexa-enabled devices without losing your spot. Of course, the books that I would recommend the most are my books, of course. In fact, there are a lot of people who have listened to my books rather than read them. The Real Crash, the most recent version of, uh, of my bestseller book, The Real Crash, and my first book, Crash Proof, the, the later version, Crash Proof 2.0, is the better one to get because it has more material in it. But a lot of people like to listen to my books uh, while they're driving or, or, or doing other things. And sometimes if you listen to it a second time or a third time, you pick up some information that you didn't necessarily grasp the first time you heard it. And, you know, a lot of people prefer getting the information in that format. Or if you want to brush up on your Austrian economics, you can listen to Man, Economy, and State by one of my favorites, Murray Rothbard. Bottom line is if you love books and you love listening, you're going to love Audible. Visit audible.com slash Peter or text Peter to 500-500 to start your free 30-day trial. On a lighter note, though, I wanted to talk a little bit about the NFT story with respect to digital houses, because I talked about this on one of my podcasts really as a joke. 
And let, what do you know, just a few days later, or maybe the next day, I'm starting to see all these stories about digital houses being sold as NFTs. And in fact, one of the things I used to say about Bitcoin, because people kept saying, well, Bitcoin you know, is digital gold. And I said, well, no, it's not digital gold. It's nothing like actual gold. So it's not a digital version of gold because you can't do anything in the real world with Bitcoin that you can do with gold. I said, Bitcoin is no more digital gold than a digital house would be a house, right? Because it could look like a house, but does it provide any shelter? Can you live in it? No. So, I mean, you can't do anything with a digital house that you could do with a real house. And a digital house doesn't provide the utility and value of an actual house. That's the same thing with Bitcoin and gold. If Bitcoin is digital gold, okay, but can you substitute digital gold for actual gold? Can I make jewelry out of digital gold? No. Can I conduct electricity with the digital gold? No. So if I need gold in a computer chip, I can't say, well, let me take some of that digital gold. No, it's not going to work. And that's the same thing with a house, except people don't seem to realize this because people now want to buy digital houses as investments. Now, look, I can understand if you wanted to buy a virtual house as part of a virtual reality program, right? And you can live in this virtual house. And I can see that there's some value if you just can't copy the program online for free. It's like a video game and you go and you buy it and it's very interactive. Right, people could buy a virtual house to live in a virtual make-believe world. And there may be some costs, just like you buy any kind of computer simulation or video game. But there's a limit to how much somebody is willing to pay for that particular form of entertainment because you're in competition with all sorts of other video games and you're not going to pay thousands of dollars to get a digital house. I mean, might you pay 50 bucks? Yeah, sure. But you're not buying it because you think you're going to sell it at a profit to somebody. You're buying it because you want to experience uh, the digital house. Now, it's not the same as the experience as an actual house, right? I mean, people are willing to pay far more money for a real house. In fact, for a modest home, I mean, even some of these tiny homes, I don't know if you ever see some of these little teeny homes that they're building now uh, for people that are, you know, just like you're living in a, in a, like a container or something. But even these tiny homes have more value than the biggest digital mansion. I mean, I don't care if I've got a digital mansion, I got, you know, 50 rooms, I got three swimming pools, I got a bowling alley in there, right? Maybe, maybe I got a helipad on the roof, right? I got you know, really cool uh, theater. I got a discotheque in there, right? I got all this stuff in my digital house. Yet, I mean, that program, if you were to buy it, would be way cheaper than the crappiest actual house that you can actually live in, that would actually provide you with shelter, a place to sleep, you know, a place to cook your food and keep your clothes, right? So there's a limit. But what's happening now is people are buying these NFTs of houses not because they want to, you know, play virtual make-believe, right, and pretend they live in this house in their VR world. They're buying these houses as investments. They think they're going to appreciate and that somebody else is going to pay even more money than they did for a house that you can't live in. This is all sheer nonsense. And I was reading this article, and they're talking to somebody who's at the company that's selling these NFTs. And this is the exact quote, because I, I wrote this down. didn't think I'm making it up. He said real estate uh, right now is at an all-time high, right? That it's risky to buy real estate. Prices are really high. Meanwhile, you know, you have offices that are empty, hotels that are empty, right? He says virtual real estate is insulated from all of the risks of real-world real estate, right? I mean, if and basically, if you have virtual real estate, you don't have the same headaches that you have when you buy actual property, where you know you, you have to worry about the property, maybe you got to pay property taxes, you have maintenance, you have insurance, you got tenants, right? This is all a nightmare, right? And so why would you want to deal in the nightmare of reality when you can be in this fairy tale dream world of uh, NFTs? And so you know, step away from that, and instead of investing in actual real estate, buy uh, an NFT, which is complete nonsense because when you're talking about real estate not having tenants. Why is that a problem? Well, because tenants pay rent, right? You're buying real estate to get rent. Well, if you can't rent out your digital 
um, house. And I don't know if there's anybody dumb enough to actually rent a digital house. I mean, apparently there are people dumb enough to buy them. But is there somebody even dumber who will rent one? But the point is that the reason that occupancy rates are important to real estate is because that's what helps determine the value of real estate because that's where the rents come from. It's the tenants that are providing the cash flow that turn real estate into an investment. But if you're acknowledging from the beginning, hey, you never have to worry about tenants with your virtual real estate because nobody's ever going to rent it from you. And so it's never going to generate any rental income. Where is the value? I mean, real real estate, actual real estate has two ways of getting value. One way is you rent it to somebody else who uses it. The other way is you use it yourself, right? So if you can't rent out your virtual house and the only thing you can do is play in your virtual house, how much is that house worth? Very little. It's a video game. It's nothing. Is it going to appreciate? No, because there is no limit. I mean, maybe you live in a one of a kind house or you bought a one of a kind digital house. Fine. But millions of other people can buy something almost identical or maybe the same thing as that house. I mean, there is no limit. I mean, he was talking about a digital Fifth Avenue or something like that and having a penthouse on a digital Fifth Avenue. Look, the reason that an actual penthouse on an actual Fifth Avenue might have value, although the values have dropped now because of COVID, but the reason that a Fifth Avenue penthouse is valuable is A, Fifth Avenue is not a big street, especially the part that overlooks Central Park. There's not that many buildings on that part of Fifth Avenue and not that many of them, uh, the penthouses, because there's usually one or two penthouses per building because the penthouse is the top floor, right? So penthouses are the rarest commodity of apartments because you only can have just a couple of them per building. And how many of them are overlooking Central Park right on this Fifth Avenue? And people want to live in New York under normal circumstances because of all the stuff that's going on in the city. And they want easy access to all those amenities. And so they want to live in the city and they want to have a great address. But to try to say that we could recreate a digital Fifth Avenue with digital penthouses is nonsense. First of all, there are an unlimited number of digital penthouses that can be created. And there's an unlimited number of digital Fifth Avenues that can be created. There's an unlimited number of digital New Yorks. None of this stuff is real. This is all on a computer, right? There's an endless quantity. There is no actual scarcity. To try to pretend that if you're buying an NFT of a house, that you have bought something that's scarce is pure nonsense. But it shines a light on the nonsense of the scarcity argument when it comes to Bitcoin itself, right? You've completely gone uh, to the extreme of idiocy when you move from Bitcoin digital currency to uh, NFTs, non-fungible tokens, and try to claim that they're scarce. You know, there is no real value here, but you know, who cares, right? They're just pushing this thing and, and to me, it gets me back to the same thing. If you really believe that a digital house is the same as an actual house, well, then maybe you believe digital gold is the same as actual gold. But once you understand that the two have nothing in common, that you cannot solve any of your life issues, you don't get any of the same utility from a digital house that you get from a real house, then you can make the connection between what you can do with actual gold and what you can do with digital gold, which is nothing. The only thing you can do with digital gold is find some greater fool willing to pay an even higher price than you did. And that's going to be the same thing that you can do with these uh, NFT of houses is hope that you'll get an even bigger fool who's willing to pay an even larger amount of money. But that's not going to happen. In the meantime, everybody I know is rushing to the NFT market. I've got all kinds of friends texting me about this, NFTs, collectibles, cards, all sorts of stuff. Everybody wants to cash in. Why do so many people want in on NFTs? Because they're so easy to create. You can create an endless supply of these things and everybody wants to strike while the iron is hot because they know they don't have a, a long window here because this market is going to crash. And as more and more NFTs come out of the market, that simply precipitates the crash because how much demand is there actually for these things? 
right? I mean, there may be initially some demand and because of these ridiculously high prices, you're having this massive supply rushing to the market as everybody's trying to cash in on this craze. The problem is the craze itself may not last very long. And a lot of the people who are hoping to cash in may find that the bubble pops before they have the chance to cash out. But I want to finish up today's podcast talking a little politics. I haven't really uh, been talking about this, or maybe this isn't politics, but yes, it is. I mean, these are social issues, but all of this intertwines today to drive a political narrative. But I think both of these stories are important and for different reasons. So the first one I want to get into, and this is about a week old, so I'm not like the first person probably to talk about these, uh, but I, you know, I, this is the first time I'm commenting about it. But the first issue had to do with Georgetown uh, Law School. And there were two professors who were fired, although one was fired and the other one resigned. But of course, his resignation was under extreme pressure. And probably if he didn't resign, he would have been fired. But the initial professor was fired. And the one that was fired uh, it was a white woman. And uh, the second one happened to be a white male. Right. And they, these are the professors. And they were fired because there was a leak of a private conversation that the two of them had on, I think it might've been Zoom, but it was one of these, uh, you know, video calls. But it was just the two of them on the line. But somehow it leaked out, right? So you always gotta be careful. uh, Whatever you say on some of these platforms, you think you're, no one's listening. Now they didn't say anything bad at all. None of these people said anything wrong, but they said something that enabled the politically correct woke crowd to basically hang them out to dry and demand and received apologies. Both of these people apologized for doing nothing wrong and it didn't matter because they still lost their jobs. And I don't understand, if you're gonna lose your job, I mean, why apologize? At least stand up for yourself, at least leave your job with some dignity. But let me discuss what happened if you haven't heard about this story. So the two professors are having a conversation and the female professor basically says to the male professor, you know, I'm really upset about this situation. I feel so bad, but you know, we're getting our grades. And unfortunately, as is typical, um, the students that are at the bottom of my class happen to be mostly black. And I really feel bad about this because, you know, now I got to give out the grades and I have to give a lot of my African-American students these low grades. And, you know, she's really, it's, it's bothering her that this is the case. She doesn't want to give them low grades. Uh, And maybe she feels pressure not to give the black students low grades because somehow it would mean she's racist, but she's not racist. The reason that she needs to give them low grades is because they did so poorly in her class. They just really didn't do a good job uh, with the coursework. And as a result, they're at the bottom. And she mentions that this is typical that almost every year, and she feels so badly about it, right? Every time it happens, she's mentioning, I feel bad about this. Right. She's not saying, yeah, what do you know, those dumb blacks? I mean, you know, ha ha ha. You know, I can't wait to flunk these guys. They're, they're all so dumb. Right. She doesn't actually say anything bad about the African-American students. You can actually tell she feels badly that they're not doing better. And, and, and she wished they did. But she's in this predicament as she usually finds herself as, OK, I got to grade my students. And what am I going to do with these the black students? Because they did so poorly. Right. If I give them bad grades, maybe people are going to say I'm racist, that I'm, I'm giving out these low grades to black. So this is the conversation. Now, the other guy is like, you know, kind of understanding. He doesn't really say, yeah, the same thing with me. But, you know, he kind of continues the conversation. He's not outraged. Right. He's not like, oh, my God, I can't believe these racist things that I'm hearing from you. I, I, I got to go and tell the dean right away. You need to be fired. Right. He wasn't outraged by what she said, because of course she didn't say anything outrageous. So his response was perfectly normal. But anyway, so this whole thing gets leaked. And as soon as, you know, people see that she said that the African-Americans or the black students were finishing near the bottom of the class and that this happens most years, all of a sudden she's a racist. She's saying negative things about black people and she needs to be fired. Now, she was fired. I think it was four or five days later. And people are complaining that they, that she wasn't fired fast enough. Like, how dare you not fire this person even sooner for saying something bad about uh, black students? But she didn't actually say anything bad. She felt bad that they were doing poorly in her class. 
But she didn't say, hey, I'm going to give these black kids low grades because they're black. She didn't say that. She said, I feel bad that my black students are not doing well. That is a accurate statement. So what they're saying is you can't tell the truth. If you are a teacher and your black students aren't doing well, you can't say that they're not doing well. You have to pretend that they're doing fine. In fact, I'm hearing now that some people want to have all of the grades that she's given out in the past reviewed to see if the black students are getting lower grades than the white students and say, aha, that's because of racism. So that, they're basically trying to say the reason her black students are doing bad in, in class is because she's racist and giving them low grades. There's no way you could jump to that conclusion based on listening to this conversation. In fact, the main reason that a lot of these black law students are not doing as well on average as the rest of the class is because these law schools lower the bar to accept these applicants. I mean, I bet if you took a look at Georgetown uh, Law and you compared the LSAT scores and the uh, undergraduate GPAs of their black applicants who they admitted, and you compare them to the white, Asian you know, uh, uh, kids, I bet that they have lower scores. These students did not do as well. Now, sure, are there going to be some black applicants that had high LSATs and high uh, 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 grades? Sure. And those guys are the cream of the crop, right? They write their own ticket at these Ivy League schools. So they're there. But there's just not enough of those guys. So if you want to have diversity at your university, right, if that's your main goal, we want to have a diverse student body, well, in order to get enough African-American students, you're going to have to lower the bar to the point that you can fill that quota. Well, if you do that, if you make it easier for black applicants to get accepted, and these applicants did not do as well in college, they did not do as well on their LSATs, is it a shock if they're not doing as well in class, if they're not performing as well as students who uh, are smarter because they got higher LSAT scores, they did better in college. You know, maybe they're you know they're 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 more prepared. They're they're better students, as demonstrated by their pro- no. Why would anybody be shocked? And you know, if these black law students at Georgetown University, let's say they had gone to a less competitive law school, let's say they had actually gone to the law school that they would have gotten into, but for affirmative action, because they're obviously, I mean, you have to have something on the ball to get into this law school, but they just weren't quite up to the caliber of the other people that were in the class. So if they were put in an appropriate law school, maybe they would have been at the top of their class. They would have done better. They could have thrived in a less competitive environment. But the problem is because of this affirmative action and political correctness, they were in over their heads and they found themselves in an environment that was probably very frustrating. And so they really just failed because they were set up to fail by the establishment that felt that it was more important to be diverse than that the students have a good experience and get a good education because these students who are not doing well at Georgetown may have done very well at a less competitive school and may have, in fact, had an even better law career in the future had they started off at the appropriate law school. But what the liberals, what this woke crowd is upset is that people tell the truth. That's the problem. You see, what they want is not only do... um, these liberals, these radical uh, left uh, um, terrorists, really, what they want is not only do they want these colleges to allow black applicants to attend school that are not otherwise qualified to be there, but then they want to just give them grades that they didn't earn either. They want to ignore the fact that they're not doing well in class and just give them a higher mark anyway. And that way, the black students would not be at the bottom of the class because the teacher will ignore, right, their actual class work and how they performed, you know, either in on the tests that they did or the essays that they wrote or discussions, whatever they're basing these grades on, just ignore the performance of the black students and just give them a good grade. Now, how more racist can you get? How more condescending towards African-Americans can you get? I mean, if I was a black kid who got into Georgetown Law on merit because I studied my ass off 
in college, in fact, high school too, and I got a high LSAT score, and I really want to be a lawyer, and I want to learn at a top law school, and they start saying, hey, let's start giving out blacks uh, good grades just because they're black, right? We don't want them to get bad grades, so just give them out good grades. That would tarnish my whole degree, right? I, do, you really want, do you really want to be a black kid coming out of law school and have people thinking, oh, your oh, oh, your grades don't matter, right? Well, you're black. They just gave you a high grade because you know we know how easy they want to make it. They coddle all the black students, right? So we 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 don't know if you actually earned uh, your grades or you earned your law degree or if they just gave it to you because you're black. No, I if you're black, you want people to know that you are held to the same standards, same academic standards as everybody else. You don't need special treatment. So if you got an A, you earned that A. If you graduate in the top 10% of your class, it's because you're better than the other 90% or you did better. You don't want to get an artificial boost because what, what good is that? If everybody knows you really didn't do it, right? I mean, what good is it, you know, if, you know, they're, they're saying, you know, there's a race and the guy that comes in, you know, in the middle of the pack gets the trophy. It's like, we, we, we could all, you didn't win that race. What good is that trophy if it doesn't signify a victory? I mean, who cares? I mean, there's no meaning to your trophy. There's no meaning to your degree from a good law school if you know that, well, they just give those things out like Cracker Jacks as long as you're black, right? Well, you don't, you just, you know, you write your own ticket at these schools. We don't want that. See, if you really are not racist and these two white um, professors, there is nothing racist that either one of them said. But what they did is they spoke truthfully and that's what they don't like. They are enemies of truth. This is, you know, which is like propaganda, right? They're trying to uh, advance this false narrative of these white racist uh, professors just giving smart black kids bad grades because they're a bunch of racists when none of this is true. But the other thing that's so problematic about this, and there's so many things, is that these people are fired for having a private conversation in which nothing is actually said wrong, but because a crowd demands that they're fired because they believe they said something wrong based on their own crazy woke standards, the law school has no choice but to submit to the will of the mob and fire these people. And what's even worse is not that the woman was fired for what she said, but that the guy was fired for not ratting her out to the, you know, the dean's office. Imagine that. Imagine what life is like now in a college or certain companies. This is the world we live in. If you take part in a conversation or maybe overhear a conversation where somebody says something that somebody else may interpret as being racist or insensitive to racist, even if you yourself don't find the comments insensitive or racist, but it's possible that some idiot could find them insensitive or racist. If you don't then rat that person out to make sure they get fired, well, now you get fired too for being accessory uh, you know, after the fact to this crime. This is the insane world where if you don't rat out somebody else, well, then you get punished too, right? And where is the civil rights attorneys? Where is all the protest about this? I mean, if these two people were black, well, if they were black, they could basically say whatever they want and nothing would happen. But if they were being unfairly fired, there would be all sorts of civil rights attorneys rushing to their defense. You know, what about the unions? Were any of these professors tenured? I'm not sure all the deal, but isn't anybody going to stand up for them? No, nobody has the guts to stand up for these professors because the minute you stand up for them, well, now you're a racist too. Or maybe you should be fired, right? I mean, I'm sure I haven't even mentioned some of this stuff on Twitter, but if I came to their defense on Twitter, I'm sure a mob uh, 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 on Twitter would try to track down my employer and try to get me fired and say, do you realize what your employee just tweeted? Do you support his racist tweet? He is defending these racists and their racist comments. Doesn't matter that the comments aren't racist and that the individuals who made them aren't racist. None of that matters, right? The truth does not matter in the world that we're living in today. This Orwellian world where the mob dictates the truth and either you acquiesce, right, and give in to their pressure and you pretend that lies are true or, you know, that's it for you. But the stories get even worse, right? I am going to now talk about another story 
that you probably never even heard of. I mean, I hadn't even heard of it until somebody else pointed it out to me. And it's about a week old. And this is a story about a, I think, 53-year-old man, mentally ill man. I'm not really sure what his mental illness was, but he's mentally ill, right? And he's sitting alone in his home. He lives by himself, 53-year-old guy. Little did this man know that while he was out at the store, two teenagers, 14 and 16, had broken into his home and they awaited for his return. When he returned and sat down in his chair, maybe he was going to watch TV or read a book or I don't know what he was going to do, check his phone. He sits down in his chair and the next thing you know, these two teens who had broken into his house pour some type of lighter fluid all over his body and then they light him on fire and watch him burn. He then runs out of the house on fire. Uh, Some of the neighbors help him. They call, I guess, the police, fire department. He's rushed to the hospital. He has second and third degree burns on over 70% of his body. And he's now in the hospital and he dies of his injuries several days later. What an agonizing death that this man suffered. And you have these two teens that on purpose, intentionally sat in wait, right? They're waiting. They break into the house. They've got the lighter fluid. They're waiting for this guy to come into the house, close the door, sit down. So they have all this time to contemplate what they're about to do, right? Because they came to the house with this lighter fluid because they wanted to make sure he really burned. They wanted to make sure he caught fire, right? And so he sits down and then they pour the stuff on him and, and, and set him on fire and watch him burn and then have an agonizing slow death in the hospital while he's got all the pains of these burns, right? Now, what makes this story even worse is that there is not only just potential discrimination based on the fact that this guy was mentally ill, but this is actually potentially a racial hate crime. And that is because the ethnicity of the people who murdered this man is different than the man who was murdered, right? And, and when I first read the story, right, it doesn't even mention that, right? When you read the stories, assuming you can even find the stories, because there's hardly any, any coverage. It happened in Rochester, right? So not necessarily a really big city. And there's some limited coverage of this in Rochester. But outside of Rochester, this story had no legs. But when I'm first reading the story, it doesn't mention anything about the race of the teens, and it doesn't mention anything about the race of the man who died. And the minute I see that, I'm a little suspicious. Hmm, there's nothing about the race, right? Because if the teens were white and if the man was black, the entire story would be about race. It would be two racist white teenagers murder innocent, mentally ill, 53-year-old black man, right? That would be the story. Race would be the number one thing because all the media would see would be two white kids murdering a black man, right? They wouldn't bother to think, well, maybe it wasn't racially motivated. Maybe there was some other reason. They would immediately assume the whole thing was racist and this would be a massive story, except that's not the way it happened. The two teens were black. The man they killed was white. And because the races were black teens kill white man, not only did they bury the fact that the murderers were black and the victim was white, they didn't even report on the story. Most uh, newspapers, magazines, TVs didn't even think it was newsworthy. But those few that reported on it made sure to leave out the ethnicities because they didn't want people to know that the teens that murdered uh, this individual in such a heinous way were black and that the person who was killed was white. Now, again, I don't know that there was any racial motivation right? These two teens may have decided to set this 53-year-old man on fire because he was mentally ill, right? Maybe they, maybe his being white had nothing to do with it. Maybe they just wanted to set him on fire because he was mentally ill. Or maybe they just felt like setting someone on fire and they just randomly picked this guy and he just happened to be white, right? They just, hey, let's, let's burn somebody. Oh, how about this guy, right? They didn't care, right? Now, maybe they decided, hey, let's let, let's burn some white guy. That might have been what they decided. I mean, they have no idea what the motivation is. Now, from my perspective, it doesn't matter. I mean, I don't care. I mean, if, if I'm on fire, if two kids burn me to death, do I care if they do it because I'm white or because I'm Jewish? or if, No, I don't want to be burned for any reason. 
and it doesn't somehow make it easier, right? Let's say these kids lit this guy on fire. And as he was burning, they said, hey, listen, buddy, you know, it's got nothing to do with race, right? We're not lighting you on fire because you're white, right? We just felt like having some kicks and we were bored today. Would that make it any less uh, of a crime? Would I be like, oh God, I'm so relieved that you're not killing me out of racism? Of course not. The whole idea that it's a hate crime somehow makes the crime any more heinous. How could you be any more heinous than this? It doesn't matter why these two teens lit this man on fire. All that matters is that they premeditated a murder and then watched him burn to death, right? That's all that matters. Who cares what the races are? Now, I don't care, right? I'm not making a race issue out of it. My point is that the left would be making a race issue out of it if the races were reversed. This would be the biggest story of the week. I wouldn't just be finding out about it like a week later. I would have known about it that day. I mean, Rochester, there would have been all this coverage. You know, all the media trucks would have come down, all the civil rights lawyers, they would have descended on this town. And, oh my God, this town is erupt with racism. How can this happen? This is life in America today where white teens, racist teens are just looking, they're stalking for innocent uh, black men, especially a mentally ill black man, and they murdered him, they burned him. This is horrible. This is a, what does this tell you about American society? And, oh, we need reparations. You know, Black Lives Matter, right? There have been protests all over the country about this black life that apparently didn't matter to these two teens, right? This would be massive news. Everybody would just assume that it was racially motivated, even though there's nothing to indicate that. In fact, they wouldn't just call them white racists. They would make them into white supremacists or, you know, they're, they're uh, MAGA people, Trump supporters. And in fact, in this circumstance, I actually read on one story that apparently this individual, before he died, was able to issue a statement. And in his statement, he said that the two black uh, teens that killed him, you know, while he was on fire or maybe before they lit him, I'm not really sure. But apparently he said that they told him to tell the authorities that it was two white men that did that to him. Now, I don't even know why they would say that. I mean, telling the guy, hey, tell, tell the police it was white people that burned you. I mean, why would he do that? Why would he lie to make it harder for the police to find the actual uh, uh, murderers by giving them the wrong race? So I don't know. This guy is mentally ill. Maybe he heard them wrong. Uh, but apparently there was something about white or race that was said to him by the other people. So it opens the door that maybe there was some type of racial uh, uh, bias or motivation behind the reason that he was targeted. But again, to me, it doesn't matter. What matters is the crime, not that motivation of the person who committed it. But if it was reversed, again, if this black man, or if he had been a black man and he said, yeah, these two white guys told me to tell the cops that it was black guys that did it, right? That would have been all the proof they needed that this was 100% a hate crime, a race crime. Not only do these two teens have to go to jail or face math, we need civil rights charges, right? I mean, everything would have been coming down, but instead it's a non-story. So why is that, right? Why is two black teens murdering a 53-year-old white man in such a heinous way? Why is that not a story at all? Why is that, you know, not even worthy of coverage? But if you have two white teens that kill a black man, why is that a national story that gets continuous coverage? It's because this is the type of story that the media wants. There is huge demand for these type of stories. That's why sometimes they just make it up like Jesse Smollett, right? Hey, just make something up. And the media is going to run with it because they're dying for a story like this because it supports their narrative that America is a racist country and that you have a bunch of white racists out there killing black people for the crime of being black. So to the extent that you find a story like that, you blow it all up. You just put all the media attention on it because it validates what you want. It supports your preconceived notion of how the world is, and then you can use it to leverage more government programs, more stimulus, right? More uh, reparations, whatever it is, because this is the proof that you need that we're such a racist society. Even though those type of crimes are extremely rare, right? You wouldn't realize it because each time it happens, it gets so much coverage. On the other hand, if you have two black teens that kill a white guy, 
even if it's racially motivated, the media doesn't even care about that story. It's like no big deal because it does nothing to help their agenda. In fact, if anything, it works against their overall agenda by reminding the public that sometimes the races are reversed. It's not always white racists killing blacks. Sometimes it could be black racists killing whites. Or maybe when people of one race kill somebody of another race, maybe it's got nothing to do with racism, right? Because they don't want to, they don't want to highlight that either. They don't want to report on examples of blacks killing whites and not talk about it as being a racially motivated hate crime because then when they cover whites killing blacks and then it's all of a sudden all about race, well, then it's a double standard. I mean, that's why they loved the Trayvon Martin story because initially they thought a white man killed Trayvon Martin. And so because they thought that George Zimmerman was white and if you listen to his last name, it sounds white and he sounds Jewish, you know, but Initially, everybody thought Zimmerman was white. Trayvon Martin was black. We knew he was black because we saw these pictures of when he was a baby, right? Six-year-old uh, Trayvon Martin gunned down by this crazed white racist. And, and so when the media initially thought that George Zimmerman was white, it was a big story about race. They later found out he was Hispanic, and that was kind of a downer. Because, you know, the Hispanics, well, they're, they're, they're the good guys too, right? They're part of the oppressed people. And so now all of a sudden we just found out that George Zimmerman was Hispanic and racist Hispanic uh, killing a black guy, that, that doesn't sound as good. That doesn't sell the papers or, you know, the get, get the eyeballs or the clicks. So they invented white Hispanic. So when they found out that George Zimmerman was Hispanic, in order to continue to portray him as a racist, they dubbed him a white Hispanic. And that's what got the story going. Because, oh yes, that still allows us to pretend it was a hate crime because he's not really Hispanic. He's one of those white Hispanics. You know, that's the worst kind. Anyway, we'll see what kind of blowback I may get for even having the, the, the gall to call out this media hypocrisy and to defend uh, two uh, professors. And my guess is they're probably liberal. I don't know what the politics are, of these two professors, but given the probability based on law professors in Washington, my guess is they're both pretty liberal and they just died by their own sword, right? You live by uh, wokeness and political correctness, you die by it. They were just being totally honest, nothing racist about what they said and look what they've got to show for it. So yes, I am willing to defend these white liberals because I don't believe that they're racist and I don't believe anything they said is racist and that does not make, make me racist. The people who are racist are the people who are condemning them for doing nothing wrong. And what's worse, the worst part to me, the ones I think are the worst, are the people who know that I'm right, right? The people who know in their hearts, not the people who are dumb enough to actually believe, to actually, you can see the videos, they're online. You can see exactly what they said and the manner in which they said it, right? So if you're dumb enough to actually think that they said something racist, okay, I'm not talking about those guys. I'm talking about the people who are smart enough to realize, like me, that they did nothing wrong. And these people are afraid to stand up to them. Those are the people that really piss me off. Because, you know, those are like the people, and again, I don't want to, I don't want to, you know, compare it to a Nazi Germany, but there are a lot of people, hey, you're afraid to stand up and tell the truth because maybe there were some real negative things that could happen to you there. You know, the people who stand up here and defend people that they knew did nothing wrong, they're not risking, they're not going to get shot. The government's not going to take you out and shoot you if you don't, you know, rat out the Jews and tell, and tell the Gestapo, hey, hey, there's, I saw some Jews, uh, you know, in that basement the other day, right? They're not, you're, you're not, you know, you're, you're not going to get shot if you, if you knowingly aid and abet. Maybe you could get fired, maybe, but Americans today are so scared of the woke mob that they don't have any principles whatsoever. So they will sit idly by and nobody will come to the defense of these people. And in fact, other people will condemn them knowing they did nothing wrong just to signal their own virtue. And these people have no virtue. They have no principles, they have no morals, and potentially they're racist to boot. And of course, nobody is going to defend the teens uh, that murdered this 53-year-old man. Nobody is going to defend them. And my only point is not to say uh, that you know the, these teens are any more guilty of this crime because they're black. Doesn't matter to me. The races are irrelevant. 
The only reason I'm talking about it is because the media makes race relevant only when it works to fuel their false political narrative that America is racist and that racist crimes against innocent blacks are rampant. And in order to perpetuate that false narrative, they highlight those crimes whenever they can find them and they ignore any crime that happens that doesn't fit that mold. And in this case, they either don't report it at all or in the rare instances where they do report it, they make sure that they make no mention of the the races of any of the people involved. When, as I said earlier, if the races were reversed, that would lead every story. Every story would be white teens. You wouldn't see the word teens without the words white before it. And the 53-year-old mentally ill man, he would not be a man. He would be a black man or an African-American man in every single story because that is what the media wants to do. And you know, we're losing this country. I mean, this is the problem. And all of this stuff, this political collectness, this, this, this woke cancel culture mentality, all of this is about pushing this left-wing political agenda. It's all about laying the foundation for more socialism and that is what we're doing. And when you cave into this, when you give into this because you're afraid to stand up, because you're afraid of being called a racist, right? You're basically enabling all this and you're allowing this country to move into socialism because they're using this as a pretense to impose more socialist programs on a nation because supposedly the socialism is there to cure the racism. I mean, they tried this with pollution and they tried to get bigger government to save the planet but now they're trying to save America from racism. So they're trying to create racism where it doesn't exist. And everybody else who is sitting idly by and just allowing it to happen, you are as guilty as the people who are perpetuating the hoax. 